0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented
1: by University of California Television. Good evening, everyone. Uh, Welcome to this uh, first evening in the Revell Forum series for 2009. I'm Dan Atkinson. I'm the Director of Arts, Humanities, and Languages at UC San Diego Extension, uh, which is the sponsoring organization for this series and as always, I want to acknowledge and thank the Neurosciences Institute for its generous collaboration in making this hall available to us. Uh, it's my pleasure now to introduce James Goldsboro, who will provide the introduction for this evening's speaker. Uh, Mr. Goldsboro has had a distinguished 40-year career in journalism, specializing in foreign affairs, he spent 15 years in Europe as a foreign correspondent for the New York Herald Tribune, International Herald Tribune, Toronto Star, and Newsweek magazine before returning to the US to resume his newspaper career as an editor and columnist for the San Jose Mercury News and also the San Diego Union Tribune. He's written on foreign affairs for many leading magazines, including Foreign Affairs, the New York Times magazine fortune and the columbia journalism review Uh, currently he writes a column for the daily online newspaper voice of san diego and he has also been touring the country to promote a new book which is entitled the misfortunes of wealth a family memoir and he describes this book as dealing with the disadvantages of inherited money so please join me in welcoming jim goldsborough
2: very much, Dan, uh, and let me be the first to welcome uh, Bob Kaiser, who's come out from rainy, blustery, cold Washington to sunny California. <laughs> and, uh, you might feel right at home with this uh, weather. It's particularly interesting to uh, introduce Bob because we're, we're former colleagues. We work for the same owner, uh, if not the same editors of the Washington Post Company, uh, Washington Post owned the International Herald Tribune when I was still there and of course it owned uh, Newsweek magazine and all that time Bob was, was the Washington Post He's written a very uh, important book, I think uh, about the misfortunes of wealth but since this title was already taken <laughs> he's called it uh, So Damn Much Money a very profound and exhaustive account of what lobbying is doing to our democracy today. It's Bob's seventh book, all written while he's been at the Washington Post, which he joined in 1963 after graduating from Yale. He's been a correspondent in London, Saigon, and Moscow, and in Washington has covered labor, the Senate, and the White House, as well as serving as managing editor of the newspaper for seven years. While in London, he received a master's degree from the London School of Economics. I read so damn much money with great interest and was particularly taken by something I read in the Acknowledgements. Because in the Acknowledgements, Bob says that my largest debt is to the Washington Post, my employer since 1963. Over the years, the Washington Post has allowed Bob and a few others like him to do some of the most important investigative reporting ever done in this country. Going back to Watergate and continuing right through Bob's book on the misfortunes of lobbying. He spent four years researching this book and produced 27 columns for the Washington Post and then the book itself. Four years on one project. So what happens in a world without the Washington Post? or without newspapers. Across the country we see newspapers disappearing, shrinking, merging. Uh, If you want to buy a newspaper you can start right here in the city, or if you don't like the city you can go up to Los Angeles and buy one up there, that's for sale as well. Some say don't worry, the internet will take over, but I can tell you this, the internet doesn't have many reporters, it doesn't have very many investigative reporters at all, and no one who can take four years to write a book like this. So who will be the watchdog? Who will speak truth to power when the newspapers aren't there? We're not there yet, thanks in large measure to reporters and editors like Bob Kaiser. Bob.
0: That was an unexpected and very gracious introduction with which I sadly have to agree wholeheartedly. (laughs) I'm I'm very sad about what's happened to your newspaper here, which used to employ Jim. Uh, And which played a very important role, as you all know, in the Duke Cunningham matter, uh, which is right on my subject. Uh, we, We can discuss this stuff a little bit in the question period if it's of interest to you. I have a lot to say about it. And we're scared because, you know, the Washington Post is is still alive, but it's not really healthy. The New York Times is in terrifying shape economically. Uh, we, we live in parlous times. But I'm here to talk about something else, also parlous. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to share some of my findings and my theories. Uh, and I've got 50 minutes, I'm told. I'm going to take off my watch here, my pretentious pocket watch, and put it where I can see it. Uh, and then we're going to have questions, and I look forward to that part more than my own part. I want to begin by thanking Tom Daschle, personally, for, for putting my issue back at the center of national attention while I'm on book tour. Not that he wanted to do it. Daschle reported earnings, in, in which we just learned about, 10, what, 10 days ago, about two weeks, maybe, Earnings of $5.3 million for 2007 and 2008, all related to the stature and experience he got while working for us as the United States Senator. The largest part of that was $2.1 million from a lobbying and law firm called Alston and Bird, which paid him one, uh, $2.1 million. I said that. Uh, it's a lobbying firm. Interestingly, as you probably remember, Dashiell never registered as a lobbyist. But he wasn't a lawyer either. He never went to law school. So what was his role? Well, it's a wonderful example of the moral and ethical ambiguities in modern Washington. His, his role was to provide strategic advice to firm, to clients of the firm, and also, obviously, to try to bring in business for the firm. Uh, I'm going to come back in a minute to the revolving door that this represented uh, but uh, I was intrigued by the fact that in my paper and other elsewhere you could read supporters and friends of Dashiell in the 48 hours or so when his fate was hanging in the balance say well what Tom did was perfectly common everybody does it now uh, why, is, why is this such a source of excitement and concern and that, and that I guess is exactly the point uh, of my book Uh, I've written a book which is an attempt to explain what happened in my hometown, Washington, D.C., in the last third of the 20th century and the first years of the 21st, when, in my opinion, our politics descended into the toilet. I've used lobbying and the career of one interesting lobbyist, a guy called Gerald Cassidy, who has accumulated a fortune of at least $100 million dollars, By playing the Washington game extremely well, as a kind of governing metaphor. Cassidy's career is one of two storylines in this book. The the second storyline recounts uh, how our politics were transformed by money and technology over the last four decades. That second story is pretty grim. Here's my argument in a nutshell. By the time fed-up gov- voters spoke up in 2006 and in 2008 and ended the Bush era, Washington was badly broken, a real mess. We've had some change in the last couple of weeks, but we still have a mess. The mess took nearly 40 years to create. It was a joint effort, and this is important to me. Democrats and Republicans collaborated In creating it. Over the last 40 years American politics were transformed. It was a complex process but its essence is pretty easy to describe. Television and money changed everything. Television is shorthand for all the new technologies that came into our electoral politics since the 60s. By the early 80s polling, focus groups, Television commercials, slick direct mail campaigns, highly paid consultants, pollsters, and so on, had become a standard part of all, or nearly all, national political campaigns. That is to say, Senate, House, and presidential. Uh, The commercials and the direct mail were most often based on the findings of polls, which told the campaigns what the voters wanted to hear. So the pollsters often became more important than the candidates. I have a wonderful anecdote in the book from my favorite pollster in Washington, a guy called Peter Hart. He's a Democrat. He's been doing the Wall Street Journal NBC poll with a Republican colleague for the last few years. He no longer does uh, campaigns, uh, political campaigns. And I asked him why in the reporting for this book. And Peter said... I got into this business in the 70s, and I worked for Giants, and he gave me a list from Hubert Humphrey to Philip Hart of Michigan and other very distinguished senators of that era. Mostly Senate campaigns is what he did. I called everyone I worked for, sir, said Peter Hart to me. I got out of this business in the late 80s. He stopped doing campaigns when I realized that everybody was calling me, sir. (laughs) It's It's a good anecdote because it tells us, I think, what happened. In 1989... I found an academic study done that year, I found it more recently, uh, in which a couple of professors asked dozens, or if not scores, of political consultants to respond to questions about their business, and they asked them, what role did the candidates you worked for in the last election, which would probably in the 88 elections, what role did the candidates play in deciding which issues to emphasize in their campaign? said of these consultants, 44% said the candidates had left entirely to the consultant the question of what issues to emphasize, what issues to run on. Two-thirds said the candidate left every tactical decision to the consultant. Think about that. 20 years ago, in 1988, the year before that survey was taken... A moderate Republican consultant, a wonderful Washington figure named Doug Bailey, told my colleague David Broder how the new technologies of politics had changed campaigns. This was a wonderful project that we did. I was then the national news editor of The Post, and we realized that these technologies were having a huge impact, and we sent all the political staff out to talk to people, and David came back with this wonderful quote from from Doug Bailey. The biggest problem, Bailey said is that it's no longer necessary for a political candidate to guess what an audience thinks. He can find out with a nightly tracking poll. So it's no longer likely that political leaders are going to lead. Instead, they're going to follow. I've reflected on this quotation time and again. This is the second book in which I've found a place for it because it means so much to me. I think it tells us an enormous amount about the era that we've all lived through, or at least the older people there. Uh, it's it's an explanation of why it is that we have seem to have lived through a period of pandering. We've, we've seen this again and again, where politicians decide what they're in favor of after they find out what the public thinks they ought to be in favor of. Who would want to run for office in these conditions is a question I think we all ought to pay a little more attention to. One answer, obviously, is attractive, well-spoken men and women who will look good on TV and who can raise the money necessary to pay for these new technologies. Because that, of course, was the essential new ingredient. Uh, You couldn't do polls on the cheap. You couldn't make flashy TV commercials on the cheap. And in fact... In a, you know, on a graph line that's quite terrifying by its steady rise, from 1974 through 2008, the average cost of the political campaigns for House and Senate, not to mention President, we will, though I will mention in a minute, uh, has gone up steadily every two years. Uh, who would want to run in a situation where the biggest assignment was to raise money and listen carefully to the instructions of your consultant? Would these be statesmen? Not likely. One of my conclusions, which I write about quite a lot in the book, and that I don't think we discuss enough because it's sort of hard to talk about this, but I think it's a fact. We have many fewer really smart, independent-minded people in Congress today than we had 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Which isn't to say we had a Congress of Statesmen 40 years ago. We did not. I covered the Senate in the late 70s, and there were a great many fools and a great many charlatans in that Senate. But there are also 30 or 40 really interesting substantive people, I think. Uh, and, and 10 years before that there were probably more uh, it's, a, it's a significant change and it's also interesting to me what happens to the rare one who shows up my favorite senator I can say uh, although we're on television maybe I shouldn't admit this but I will anyway uh, in, the, in recent years was Chuck Hagel of Nebraska uh, a very independent minded uh, Republican from Nebraska who reads books thinks for himself writes his own speeches, and gave up on the Senate a year and a half ago and just said, I can't put up with this anymore. Uh, he's not alone by any means. Uh, a lot of the best people have just walked away from it. Uh, I was intrigued to discover, during the reporting, that when I came to this conclusion myself, which I thought was, this is a problem because there's, there's, it will be seen by some, some people as another example of that know-it-all left-wing media telling us, that our our congressmen are dumber than they used to be. So I went around and talked to old hands. Uh, And there's some wonderful quotes in the book. I won't do them all now, but uh, I was stunned by how many people agreed with me, beginning with Peter Hart, that pollster I mentioned earlier, Uh, but Republican, Bob Livingston from Louisiana. You remember Livingston was going to be Newt Gingrich's successor as speaker until he got trapped in a sex scandal of his own and had to give up, he became a lobbyist. But I put this to Livingston, isn't it true? that the quality is lower than it used to be. Oh, it's so true, he said. Uh, And others, too. In fact, all the old hands in Washington understand this, that you do not have independent, serious people uh, really interested in in governing uh, in the the quantity that we would like to have in the Congress. The costs of these campaigns are now really staggering. You know this in California, of course, from your state politics. Here's one of my favorite statistics. In 1974 not that long ago, the average winning Senate campaign, that is to say the campaign of those who won Senate seats in 1974, 33 or 34 people, uh, cost $450,000, 1974 dollars. Today that would be about $1.3 In 2008, we don't have the final numbers yet, but they will be very close, the same number will be very close, to $10 million dollars. And many winning campaigns for the Senate last year cost more than $25 million, and not in a big state like California, but in North Carolina and in Oregon, uh, in medium-sized states. Uh, when, when you have to have that much money uh, to run for office, uh, you're in a different league and a different world than I grew up in, certainly. Money became more and more important in Washington in other ways, too. Uh, And not only in Washington, of course. I was last in San Diego in the fall of 1968. I was on the airplane of Edmund Muskie when he was running for vice president with Hubert Humphrey. And we came here, and he gave a very important speech here. Uh, But I haven't been back since. And just looking at this city since then is a stunning reminder of how America has become more wealthy uh, and more prosperous in the intervening years. Uh, But in Washington, we've had this in spades, Uh, and Washington, indeed, one of my arguments here in the book is that Washington became, in these years, uh, in a whole new way in American history, a venue uh, for the great American pastime, which is not baseball, but making money. Here's why it happened. Starting in the 60s, the reach of the federal government began to extend farther and farther into American society and American life. More and more Americans realized that their livelihoods and their well-being could depend on decisions made in Washington. Corporations and businesses realized the same thing, and they began opening Washington offices. It's interesting that in the, in the, early, in the late 60s, early 70s, only a handful of big American companies had a Washington office. Now they all do. Uh, interest groups got organized and began to lobby the government for laws and policies favorable to themselves. All these interested parties hired lobbyists who have become a new class of wealthy, influential Washingtonians. Before long, in this new world, uh, members of Congress and their, and their staffs and officials in the executive branch, too, began to envy the style of life of this new class. Their mansions in suburban Virginia and Maryland... Their country houses on the eastern shore of Maryland or at Robeth Beach in Delaware. Uh, The the fat paychecks that they earned. The grand dinners out at Washington's burgeoning quantity of fine restaurants that they were able to enjoy. Over time, thousands, literally thousands, of government officials, Tom Daschle, an example, or former government officials, moved from public service through what we've come to call the revolving door into, into the lobbying trade. They went downtown. They went to K Street in the jargon of Washington to cash in. And Washington began to take this for granted. And that was the Dashell case in point. Young people began to come to Washington. This is what really got to me when I realized it was going on. Young people came to Washington to get a job on the Hill for a member of Congress or in the executive branch, ideally in one of the regulatory bodies like the Federal Communications Commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission, with the idea that they would only spend two, three, four years in that job and then go downtown, sign up in one of the big law firms, uh, lobbying firms or law firms, and start a lucrative career as a lobbyist. In other words, public service became a stepping stone and not a an end in itself. I asked Robert Strauss, uh, an old source of mine for many years, an interesting character who was ambassador in Moscow in the, in the Yeltsin years, uh, and, and quite a character, Democratic National Chairman at one time, uh, and one of the great fixer lobbyists in the history of modern Russia. I said, Strauss, explain to me, why did the lobbying business boom the way it has in the years since 1975, the years covered in my book, uh, why did it boom in, the, in these years when you've been in the business? And he stopped and he thought about it, and he said, you know, there's just so damn much money in it. When he spoke those words, I know I, I, knew I had a title for my book. Lobbyists needed friends in Congress to win access and favors for their clients. Members of Congress needed money to run for reelection. The rest is history, some of it rather notorious history. One of my favorite quotations in this book is from a man called Dale Lieback, who once worked for Gerald Casty, who I'm going to talk about in a few moments the central figure, the guy I made the central figure in the book as a kind of storytelling device. Uh, Dale's a public relations man uh, and he, here's what he said to me when well, I asked him you know, what had happened what, what, what happened here? He said the Hill, meaning Congress can't exist now without downtown the lobbying community Downtown can't exist without the hill. It's the largest, most democratic bazaar in the world. And it's all about money going in both directions. Bingo. In that bazaar, Congress got in the habit of doing favors to win friends and supporters. Favors often in the form of appropriated money. You have Duke Cunningham to remind you of that. Over time, it became commonplace for members of Congress to swap their votes on contentious issues uh, for some benefit for their constituents or their supporters. There was a really vivid example of this in September when the House initially beat back the uh, The first version of the bailout bill, you remember this, the stock market collapsed as it was happening, uh, and everybody shuddered. Did this mean there couldn't be a bailout, that nothing could be done? Uh, The Bush administration and leaders in Congress scrambled uh, to figure out how they could get the votes they needed, and they quickly added some sweeteners to the bill. Such a revealing word, sweeteners. An extension of a tax break for distillers of Puerto Rican rum at a cost of $192 million to the Treasury. The extension of another tax break for the owners of stock car racetracks, $100 million to the Treasury. A tax break for movie makers who shoot their films inside the USA, $478 million cost to the Treasury over 10 years. These and a couple of others did the trick. The second time around... The bill passed. Sweeteners were payoffs, really. They were like the earmarks that John McCain ran against in November. Gerald Casty, my chief figure in the book, was an inventor of the modern earmark appropriation, which I define as an allocation of federal money to a particular institution or enterprise for a specific narrow purpose favored by one or more members of Congress. Cassidy got rich, really rich, in the 80s and 90s by teaching members of Congress, literally, and the presidents of colleges and universities and the heads of big hospitals around the country how to create these earmarks and make everybody happy. It's a great only in America story. Let me tell you the the first earmark story, which which has now been repeated thousands of times. It involved... Tufts University in Somerville, Massachusetts next door to Cambridge where Harvard is and an interesting man called Jean Mayer, a famous nutritionist in the 60s who became president of Tufts in the early 70s and had a dream to build a human nutrition research center his subject and he wanted his new university to be a leading player in it uh, he, there was an inaugural ceremony at Tufts for the new president uh, and the local congressman came to the ceremony and told the president of tufts congratulations if i could help you in any way just let me know that was a fellow called tip O'Neill, and uh, jean maier had the thought that this might be significant Uh, at this very moment uh, gerald cassidy this interesting guy who i as i said used as a kind of storytelling central character for this book uh, a man who came to washington to work for george mcgovern uh, on the Senate Select, Select Committee on Nutrition and Human Needs, which became known as the Hunger Committee. Himself, uh, in his own mind, a liberal Democrat who, who came to Washington to help the hungry and the poor. Uh, he and, and another guy on the committee called Ken Schlossberg had, had left in 1975 to establish what Schlossberg thought of as a consulting firm and Cassidy thought of as a lobbying firm. Uh, they were friendly with Jean Maier because Maier had helped McGovern on hunger issues as a famous nutritionist. And when, when this sequence of events occurred, it was just when they were going into business and they had sent letters out to everybody they knew saying, if you have a problem in Washington, we're in business now, we'd love to help. Uh, Maier picked up the phone and called Schlossberg and said, come up and talk to me. Uh, he went up and they had a conversation about... Uh, the, the, the Meyer's dream for the Nutrition Research Center and O'Neill's offer of help uh, this led uh, in, in a wonderful sequence of events which I'll let you savor in the book if you want to get the details uh, to a $26 million earmark for Tufts University to build this facility which exists in Boston today uh, has been quite successful uh, and which made everybody in that particular transas- uh, transaction extremely happy uh, O'Neill was thrilled to bring home to his home district a big new installation uh, that he could take credit for, participate in the ribbon cutting ceremony, etc. Schomeyer, of course, was delighted because he got the big thing he was looking for and didn't have to raise the money for it because the government provided it. Schlossberg and Cassidy were delighted because, as Schlossberg said to me much later, we could hear the cash registers going in the background. kaching, ching ka-ching, ka-ching. They had invented a whole new way to make money, and it took off. Interestingly, right after... Uh, well, they, they then did a veterinary school for Tufts, then they did a medical library for Tufts, and the other colleges in Boston began to catch on, That something was going on here that was pretty interesting uh, they too signed up as clients of this new firm called, then called Schlossberg-Cassidy uh, Boston University, the most important of them John Silber, some of you have heard of had just become the president he wanted to use the same technique to build Boston University into a big and successful institution, which he did uh, it was an extraordinary uh, device, and the fact that it made everybody happy uh, made it extremely popular and easy to sell. Uh, all you had to do was explain to the members, as, as Cassidy and Schlossberg did, uh, how the system worked and how they could make it happen for their constituents and their friends. When the Republicans gained control of the Congress in 1994, uh, they turned to earmarks as a principal tool to preserve their majority, to help their new members stay in power. Uh, this, this, uh, this has been uh, not adequately absorbed or written about, in my opinion. It was a very big part of Newt Gingrich's leadership style. <coughs> Bob Livingston, who I qu- quoted earlier, was, by Gingrich's choice, made the chairman of the Appropriations Committee. And he tells me very candidly, it's in the book, but what happened? Livingston was a serious appropriator, a serious legislator, but when, he said, when Gingrich, who had made me the chairman, skipping him over people who were more senior to do so, when Gingrich came to me and said, we've got to do something for old Joe, he's got a tough race this year, we've got to get him an earmark, what, what, what can we do for Joe? I knew, Livingston said, that I had to do that. That was, that was my duty to the, to the party, I had to go along. Uh, And this is when the earmarks really proliferated. It's interesting that McCain made it an issue, but but it really was a Republican uh, appetite for this that shot the thing way up. Not that the Democrats were any slouches about it or hadn't done their share earlier, Uh, but it really did take off. Uh, The Republicans also uh, did favors, of course, beyond earmarks for those who would support them. And they famously cultivated the lobbying community and began to push it around a little bit uh, to advance their own cause. Some of you here, I'm sure, have heard about and know about the K Street Project, which was Tom DeLay's uh, clever scheme to persuade lobby— first of all, to persuade corporations and lobbying firms that they ought to hire more Republicans and rely less on Democrats, uh, and then to make um, uh, transactional favors— uh, that were extremely helpful to the to the interest groups and, and ultimately to the Republicans in Congress as well. Uh, the delay opened, the, and, and Gingrich, opened the legislative process often uh, to the lobbyists. Uh, it wasn't as bad as it might sound to some uh, here because it wasn't difficult for these very pro-business conservative Republicans to say, to some industry or trade association. Uh, you know, we want to do what you want to do. We're pro-business. We're anti-regulation, as they all fervently were. Uh, so it was quite easy to make these, make these transactions happen. Uh, and the only, in, in return, all that they, the leadership asked was that the, that the people getting the favors, the lobbyists who were often allowed to actually write legislation uh, and, and have other uh, advantages, uh, all they wanted in, in, in return was substantial campaign contributions to help preserve the Republican majority. Was this all corrupt? I think we have to decide for ourselves. The fascinating Senator Russell Long of Louisiana, the son of Huey Long, said in a debate in the early 1970s, there's only a hairline's difference between a campaign contribution and a bribe. You can hardly tell the difference. I had lunch today with a very brilliant professor at UCSD, a political scientist named Gary Jacobson, who had kindly read some of my book, and we were talking about it. And he said, you know, I think people throw around the word bribery, as Russell Long did. Uh, I think of it more as extortion, said Professor Jacobson. And it's a fair point, because as any lobbyist who is playing this game, and many of them have said this right to me, will tell you, Uh, None of them line up out of pure enthusiasm to hand over hundreds of thousands of dollars every two years uh, to politicians. And you can now, uh, under the law, you can give about $100,000 a year if you max out, a wonderful Washington phrase, which means give the legal maximum. uh, It's a lot of money. Uh, But they do it because the members are asking them to do it. And if you're a lobbyist in Washington and you're asked for a donation from a member that's important to something you're working on... You don't want to be the guy who says no. Uh, and in Washington, one of my arguments is this has all been rationalized away. So that what once looked really pretty bad is now accepted with that wonderful Washington phrase, well, everybody does it. Uh, and doing it is grim. This is, this is a, where I myself was t- really taken by surprise, uh, by a phenomenon that I'd heard of but didn't understand at all when I started my reporting. There's a whole new industry in Washington, not so new anymore, uh, of Washington fundraising consultants. The political consultants who design campaigns and make commercials and so on is one thing. The fundraising consultant's only job is to help the candidate make, uh, raise money. And what I learned... Uh, from reporting, and from a particularly interesting practitioner of this trade, a guy called Mike Frioli, who gave me a wonderful interview, uh, is how this works. Frioli is a liberal Democrat uh, who represents only Democrats. Uh, Some of these people work on a percentage basis. I'll I'll raise money for you, and you'll pay me 8% of whatever I raise as my fee. That seems pretty close to the line to me, but it's legal. Frioli, and many others, prefer to work on a fixed-fee basis, which seems a little cleaner, I guess. Uh, and here's how Mike does it, by his own account. He, Congressman Smith, or, or, the, or the person who wants to challenge Congressman Smith, hires him, uh, and he does research on the candidate uh, and says... And he maintains his own databases. He's kept all the records which have to be filed. That's one good aspect of our system. Every contribution to a federal candidate has to be reported. Frioli makes his own databases that he can then manipulate and play with. And he can discover who has run for Congress or the Senate recently whose positions on issues are similar to Smith's, his new client. Uh, he then starts to make lists with phone numbers of hundreds of people who have given to such other candidates. Uh, he, makes, he gets these lists into the hands of Smith, and Smith's assignment is to make the phone calls uh, and ask for donations. And here's where I was taken aback. Frioli tells me, and I later confirmed from others, that it's now absolutely standard operating procedure for members of the House and Senate to spend one day a week, a day and a half a week, sometimes two days a week, dialing for dollars, as they call it, making those phone calls to the names on those lists. You're not allowed to do this from your office inside the Senator House office building. You've got to go, most of them like to go to comfortable facilities created for them by the Democratic and Republican campaign committees where they can go and make these phone calls. But they're making them in their work days when they're supposedly working for us and we're paying them. Uh, and, they're, and they're going through this absolutely humiliating experience, at least by my standards, of calling people on the phone who they don't know often and saying, Hi, I'm Joe Smith. I'm running for Congress. I'm running for re-election. Uh, I see that you support a lot of the things I believe in. Uh, I'm hoping you can help me out. Uh, and Frioli said to me, this is a pretty rough experience because more often than not, Uh, you don't reach the person you're calling. When you reach the person, there's a good chance they'll just say no and hang up. You'll reach a lot of answering machines. You'll reach some really rude people who just yell at you. Uh, It's no fun at all. And this is what our statesmen and women are doing now. Of course, they don't like to talk about it. It's one of the reasons this came as a surprise to me and probably comes as a surprise to you. Because it's sort of demeaning to say, well, yes, I'm a congressman and I spend two days a week on the phone raising money. Uh, What a way to live. But... Uh, they do it. And of course, that's the extortion that Gary Jacobson was talking about. It comes in the forms of those phone calls. My argument in the book is that all these arrangements that I've been discussing uh, led to a culture of avoidance. We have avoided, as our new president is reminding us, uh, and reminded us all year in, in his campaign, we have been avoiding a lot of big questions that have been before this country for a long time. Uh, And we just have turned away from them and ignored them. My favorite example is Social Security and Medicare, because the warnings have been so clear for so long. The the crisis in Social Security and the crisis in Medicare is based on simple demographics. Uh, The people my age and younger, who are just coming into the system, are a lot more numerous than the previous generation. And the baby boomers are right behind us, a lot more numerous still. Uh, We have to figure out a new way to do these programs, or they will not survive. And this has been known, clearly understood, by all the experts for at least a quarter of a century. I remember feeling uh, with quite a high degree of confidence in 1993, when I was the managing editor of the Post, that that this new young Bill Clinton would would certainly have to confront this issue. No, just ignored it. Uh, George W. Bush... No, not until 2005, when he he never really came up with his plan for privatizing Social Security. But as you know, he talked about it a lot, and then, and then he gave up on it, and that was the end of it. Uh, I think uh, this has been all too familiar, I'd write about it more in the book. But, you know, what which of our big problems have we solved? The environment? No. Uh, education? Well partially maybe a little and on and on we can write a long list Uh, but one of the tragedies of the situation I think is uh, that we we now attract a new kind of person uh, into Congress Uh, Doug B writer another Nebraska Republican a very interesting congressman for more than 20 years a really talented legislator who loved the process of legislation who also gave up on the House, what, four years ago now. He's the president of the Asia Society or Asia Foundation up in San Francisco. Uh, B. Rogers said to me, the new breed, the ones who survive this hazing of having to do the money raising, having to accept the role of the consultants and the pollsters and so on, uh, they're in this because they love the combat of electoral politics. They love to have these fights and win and clobber the enemy and, you know, defeat it and claim victory, and so on. Uh, and this is what they're here for. They, they, they want the thrill of the game. Uh, and they don't care, says B. Ryder, really about governing at all. It's not an interest to them. In fact, they're quite bored by it. I think this is tragically true, and I think the, the level of appalling governance that we've been suffering for some years now is evidence of it. But. Uh, Now, as I said, we have a a slightly different reality. We have a new president who has promised uh, to confront all these questions and who ran quite explicitly against the culture of avoidance. He also said interesting things in the campaign, not that well publicized, but it's an intriguing list of quotations, which I put together and wrote about in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago, a week ago Sunday, Uh, He understands this culture that I've written about. He learned it pretty quickly. He was only in the Senate for two years, really, before he went off to run for president. Uh, But he he saw, as he said in Ohio in one campaign event, uh, politics in Washington is not a mission, it's a business. Exactly right. Uh, And he has promised to do something about it, and he started on his second day in office with an interesting executive order, which a lot of you remember, in which he said... If you want to be a member of my administration, you've got to sign a formal commitment uh, that you will not come back as a lobbyist after you leave my administration and try to lobby my administration for as long as it remains in power. This is a significant idea for slowing down the revolving door. Uh, He also said that there will be absolutely no gifts from lobbyists to members of the executive branch. Congress, in 2007, after the Democrats regained control, passed a similar gift ban... So lobbyists now can no longer take people out to lunch or dinner. Uh, and that's a healthy change, but it doesn't solve the problem. Uh, I to me, the Daschle example is, is a, good, a good reminder of how hard it's going to be to change anything. And so, too, are the waivers. So you may have read about this. Our new deputy secretary of defense, somebody I don't know or know anything about, a man called William Lynn, was... You know, although Obama announced that he would hire no lobbyists into his administration, part of the same pronouncement on the second day, the new Deputy Secretary of Defense is a former Raytheon lobbyist. Raytheon, one of the biggest defense contractors. And and a waiver will be issued in favor of Mr. Lin's participation in the government. It's one of three already agreed on. Uh, Another reminder how hard it is uh, to change all this. Let me quickly tell you what I did here in this book in hopes that I can tempt you to read it uh, and, and explain why it takes the form that it does. Um, my, I am a storyteller. That's what reporters do. Uh, and so, I, as I said, I wanted a character. Uh, and I looked around uh, and found, thanks to a tip from a colleague, that there was one lobbyist in Washington who had had the bold idea of taking his firm public selling shares to the public in his lobbying firm this was Gerald Cassidy and if you do this i mean, we're in California so lots of you know this if you do this you have to file a document called an S1 with the Securities and Exchange Commission which is a description of your business uh, and an implied explanation of why anyone would want to own a piece of it uh, and Cassidy to his credit uh, wrote a pretty honest and straightforward and very detailed S-1. So detailed, I thought when I read it, it, it was filed in 98, I didn't read it until 2004, but it was so detailed that I thought, gee, this really helped his competitors. And I later found out that indeed it did. There's a, a rival firm that, that that does a lot of the same things Cassidy did, that that clearly dined out on the details that he provided uh, in this S-1. Uh, he turned out to be a really colorful character. Uh, he a, was a poor kid from Brooklyn. He grew up in a, in a horrible family situation, uh, alcoholism and poverty. Uh, he was the first member of his family to go to college. He really was a do-good liberal, although he had the idea from a very early age, uh, very much like Jay Gatsby, to whom I compare him, uh, that he was going to do really well and not suffer the pains that his relatives had suffered, and he was going to get rich. But... To this day, he thinks of himself as a liberal Democrat uh, and uh, devoted to helping losers as well as winners. He goes to mass every day. Uh, I went to see him and I said, bad news, I'm going to pick on you. Uh, I'm looking for a device to to write about lobbying and and you're going to be my device. I'm going to find out everything I can about you and your business. Uh, He was (laughs) he was ambivalent about this. I think he liked the fact that he was going to get this kind of attention uh, there's a lot of ego in Washington, as you know And this was a guy, although his firm was number one in revenue At this moment uh, had, more, had more lobbying revenue than any other firm And had been for number one for a number of years He wasn't a well-known figure In fact, I went around to my friends in the news business When I started this project said, What are you doing working on this guy, Gerald Cassidy? Who? What? Didn't know him um, Which was an advantage to me, too, I felt Because it meant I was doing something on unplowed t- territory uh, but it turned out that he was really historically interesting, not least for the invention of the earmark, which I discussed, uh, but also for his success. He, I, I think to this day he has made more money based on his lobbying career than anybody else in Washington, in no small measure because he's a very shrewd investor and he, and he did clever things. He sold his firm three times, uh, twice to an employee stock ownership plan and once to a big uh, multinational conglomerate called the Interpublic Group of Companies, which now owns the firm. Uh, but anyway, he, he managed to to monetize this firm to the maximum possible degree and then to invest cleverly and assume this and, and acquire this great fortune that he has. Uh, and, he, and he decided uh, with prodding from his colleague, Jody Powell. Some of you will remember Jody Powell as Jimmy Carter's very charming Georgian press secretary when Carter was president. Uh, Jody was hired by Cassidy to create a lobby, a public relations firm within the lobbying firm. It became known as Powell Tate, very successful initially. Uh, and they became close friends. And indeed, Powell, with the money that Cassidy made him rich with, bought a, bought a farm on the eastern shore of Maryland and taught Jerry Cassidy to be a gentleman hunter and a uh, sportsman on the, on the banks of the Chesapeake Bay Cassidy now is an incredible $8 million spread on the Bay and likes to go hunting. He's much teased by his old Brooklyn friends for these new affectations. My reporting on Cassidy led me to realize that the rise of lobbying was part of this broader story that I've been talking about, the transformation of Washington and politics in Washington. Uh, my, my literary theory is that a book like this, covering four decades of history and a lot of complicated material, can only be fun if it's built on stories and personalities. And so that's what I've tried to do. I've tried to gather together a lot of compelling anecdotes that help me make points that I think are important about history I'm trying to tell, and to make these points in an interesting and in a human way. Uh, so the book is an argument, as I've outlined uh, this evening, but the argument is made through episodes and anecdotes. And lots of them are inside Washington stories. Uh, Of a kind that I hope Usually don't make the papers How things really happened Uh, Now I think I'm okay on time Uh, How are we doing Dan How many minutes left Five minutes, three minutes I want to read one of these stories My favorite one In hopes that it seems irresistible It's about John Stennis Who some of you will remember Was a very complicated Interesting figure, long time Uh, six-term, seven-term senator from Mississippi. Stennis was a a very smart man, a very devoted senator who thought that there was no higher calling than to be a senator of the United States. He was a racist. He was terrible on race issues as a Mississippi white Democrat. Uh, But he was very good on other issues. He was the the first promoter of an ethics code for the Senate uh, and the first chairman of the Senate Ethics Committee. And he was for many, many years the, the dominant figure in the Senate on issues of defense and defense spending. He was both chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee and the Appropriations Subcommittee on uh, defense, which appropriates money for the Pentagon. He was facing his sixth re-election in 1982, but up to that time, he had never had a serious opponent, And amazingly, he had never had to spend more than $5,000 on a campaign. But in that year, a young, uh, ambitious and aggressive young Republican from Mississippi named Haley Barber decided at the age of 34 that he would challenge the great icon John Stennis, who was then in his 80s and not in the best of shape. Uh, And Ronald Reagan had swept Mississippi in the 1980 election. This was two years later. Uh, And the the dream had begun to to ripen in the minds of Republicans that they could actually take the South and make it theirs, as indeed they did over the subsequent years. Uh, So, I'll pick up the story there. Stennis' friends among the old bulls in the Senate were nervous about what might happen to him. Russell Long of Louisiana and Lloyd Benson of Texas decided that that he should hire a political consultant that they had both used in the past, Raymond Struther of Louisiana, very interesting guy. There's more about him in here. I won't bother with it now. Uh, Struther uh, was sent by Benson and Long to Mississippi to investigate the situation, uh, and then then they told Stennis that they wanted him to meet this young man, and, and they thought he could help him with his campaign. Uh, Struther, on his tr- go back to my book Struther realized on his trip to Mississippi that Barber's campaign would try to convince Mississippians that in 82 Stennis was too old and too frail to serve another term Struther's plan was to undermine that argument with TV commercials that would feature testimonials from Stennis's colleagues and carefully made spots featuring the senator himself looking perfectly competent mm-hmm. this would cost serious money Strother told Senator Stennis when they met one day in his office in the Russell Senate office building. The senator's offices there were designed to be imposing, big rooms under ceilings that are 17 feet high. Strother broke the news to Stennis that he would need to raise $2 million. How, the old man asked, could he possibly do that? Benson and Long had volunteered to raise some of the money, But Stennis would have to help. When Strother talked about this, he said later, Stennis, quote, would just wring his hands. Finally, in desperation, this is Strother, I reminded the old senator that he was chairman of the Armed Services Committee and and that he had spent billions of dollars with the defense industry. What about LTV, I asked him. What about McDonnell Douglas? giant defense contractors. In other words, Strother was telling Stennis... ...it was time to cash in some of his chits... ...with the corporations that got rich... ...on the Pentagon programs that he had supported. Would that be proper? Stennis asked. And then he answered the question himself... ...addressing Strother the way he dressed most grown men... ...as sir. Sir, I hold life and death over those companies... I don't think it would be proper for me to take money from them. Personally, Strother agreed, but he told his new client that this was, quote, how all the senators do it now. His reassurance did not solve Stennis' feeling that it was wrong, Strother remembered. Stennis's question, Strother told me, has bothered me for years. I'll never forget that conversation or the troubled look on his lined face. When I left his office, he was looking at his folded hands on the table in his office that had once belonged to Harry Truman. It looked as though he was in prayer. I was very sad, Struthers speaking. I had just diminished something he held very dear. It was obvious. He thought I was telling him to sell his vote for campaign money. The money was raised. The commercials were made and broadcast, Stennis thumped Barber by nearly two to one. He served out his seventh term and retired in 1989 at age 87. Well, that's all I've prepared to say. Thank you very much, and I look forward to answering some questions if you'll pass them to the aisle.